Thank you for joining us for today's discussion around Lost Soul Animal Rescue. I am joined by its creator and writer, Gary Mock, joining us from Toronto, and the leader of the episode, filmmaker and director, Karen Lamb. And to help us explore the thematic construct around this Chinese virtue of filial piety, we have with us Dr. Allison Bailey, who is a professor of Asian studies at UBC, with a particular focus on Chinese literature, language, culture, film, art, legal history, the list goes on and on. So uh, welcome, all of you. We are on Zoom uh, because of uh, the, the pandemic at the moment and, and because, of course, Gary is joining us from Toronto. So forgive any sort of varying uh, levels of, of audio. But Gary, let's start with you. Uh, this, this episode started, of course, in your very imaginative brain. Uh, can you just tell us about the inspiration around Lost Soul Animal Rescue, what you were wanting to discuss through the piece? Yeah. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for, thanks for having me here, and, and thanks for that question. Um, yeah, I think before I started Lost Soul Animal Rescue, we had been working together on, on a project and as well as with uh, Joanna Garfinkel. Um, and, and this was like, I want to say like three to six months before, you know, we locked down. And in that story, there, there was this like global blackout, you know, the, this thing that happens across borders and that like everyone's experience is united because we're all experiencing this blackout, but also it's very, um, it's it's very different for everyone depending on where they are. I, I really wanted to attack this idea of a, of a global blackout as kind of a stand-in for for some other issues, um, but from a different angle. Um, and one of the big news items I don't know if you all remember this like 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 within like the first three to six months of everyone going into lockdown throughout the world, uh, especially in Europe, there were like these news articles about like animals returning to like roam the cities that had previously been populated by by humans who were who were stuck at home now and i think i was really uh interested in in exploring that further because i i thought like you know like nature's been communicating to us about the consequences of our actions long before the past couple years you know um, and it was just a matter of us having, like, bothering to look or bothering to listen. And that idea of something being there this whole time and us just needing to, to see it uh, or know how to see it um, really extended really well to my own interests with, like, Chinese ghost stories um, and, and this you know, idea of them always being there, but some people have, have the gift to see them or a gift or a curse, you know, depending on, on the point of view of the story. And I think, yeah, by extension, you know, these ghosts really extended into this idea of listening to those have, that have come before and of, of filial piety and um, considering who is to come after. Well, I, I, it's such an interesting layered piece that you've you've created with multiple different um, uh, things being kind of you know placed into this environment. Whether it's um, the blackout, uh, technology, magical realism, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of different uh, interesting layers. We'll come back to that. But first of all, you mentioned filial piety. Um, 
Dr. Bailey, uh, or Allison, if you will, uh, can you explain what this what this is? What is this cultural concept? It's it's a it's it's Chinese virtue, is it not? It's a virtue. Um, I would say it's also an emotion, um, different differently too. Um, it's really central and fundamental to Chinese culture, definitely. definitely. Um, and some have said it's like the basis of all other virtues. Um, and, you know, filial piety remains and continues to shape Chinese culture today. It's very, very central to Chinese culture. Um, and it is conceived very much as being a kind of natural endowment that comes from the cosmos. And it's natural to humans, but also natural to animals as well. Um, but what is it? What is, what the is it? Well, the virtue, um, it's a kind of based on a kind of reciprocal relationship. It's fundamentally hierarchical. Um, you could say within the Confucian version of it, um, good parents feed and educate their children and they raise them properly to be good people. Moral, morally good and, and well-educated. Um, and then in return, children, but especially sons, are expected to reciprocate that caring through something called reverent caring, which has almost a religious flavor about it. Um, they will, they reciprocate the kind of sacrifices and uh, caring and nourishment that their parents gave them. Um, and they do it through a kind of almost a kind of spontaneous um, acts of nourishing and caring for their parents in return. Okay. It's not meant to be a, like a payback, a debt or anything like that. It's not meant to be grudging. It's a spontaneous act of, could be affection, could be love, um, but it is definitely based on you, you, find ways to um, care for your parents um, for what the ways that they cared you. Um, so, I mean, there are examples of crows, Gary, thank you, all these crows and the crow in the story. Crows are meant to be these incredibly filial birds. Filial because they um, masticate re and regurgitate food and feed their but they're young, but also feed their old. They stay within the nests uh, for about up to five years, apparently. Um, and uh, they they work within a community. Um, and so they are they become in Chinese culture a very a, the symbol of, of a filial creature, not the tricksters that you get in in say um, in First Nations culture or anything like that. Um, so one of the this idea of kind of regurgitating of food as a form of reciprocal care comes out in example is a very famous example of a, of a man who used to masticate the food for his elderly toothless father um, and give it to him and then this elderly father because the son was so filial miraculously regained his teeth in, in reward for having such mm. a a, a filial son. So nice, <laughs> yeah. nice. So, does this um, responsibility of reciprocal care does that then carry through in the afterlife as well? Is it a ongoing ancestral care? Yes, I mean, sorry. yes, yes. I mean, you're meant to uh, offer food up to your ancestors um, to to make sure. I mean, there are 
festivals like the uh, um, the Hungry Ghost festivals and, and you know the, the things like that. Where and uh, at Qingming, where you take food to the graves, you sweep the graves and you offer food up to your ancestors, um, and that way they they remain. Um, you know, you're showing your care to the, the past, to the, those who have passed, to the dead, definitely. So Gary and Karen, uh, since you were both raised in Chinese homes um, in regards to your cultural backgrounds and such, is this a virtue that you felt in your homes? Karen? I feel like I failed on the on the paleopiety with my, my actually living parents. But um, as far as the, the, the dead were actually very much a part of my growing up, we always had a shrine to the ancestors. So there was always my grandfather, you know, staring up from <laughs> various photos and we always had uh, altars and there's always oranges, fresh, fresh fruit out for him. And I remember um, when I was young, one time going to my grandmother's and um, she brought fresh oranges for my grandfather who had passed. And I, I asked about the oranges and she said, don't, those are for your grandfather. I, of course, ate one, ended up with a terrible stomach ache. And of course she knew, knew. And uh, later on, she's like, told you not to eat the orange, right? <laughs> so there's definitely. Uh-huh. Gary? Yeah, same, same with Karen. I mean, we, we had, I think, yeah, my, my, my grandfather, um, from my, my, my maternal grandfather passed away in Hong Kong. I had a shrine. I never met him. And then, you know, a lot of my paternal family immigrated here, but not my father's grandmother. But every, you know, every Qingming, we would go and visit uh, her gravestone, which was here. Um, and I don't know how long it is until I found out that, like, she wasn't buried there. Like, it was it was representational, um, that act. But it was still, like, it was just, you know, this thing that we did. Was there a pressure uh, within the family in regards to this this uh, ancestral care, or um, was it really just a very nurturing, loving element? There was always food involved. Food is really important to to our people, I think. So I remember when my grandmother passed, um, and we were in Hong Kong, and it was for memorial service. We basically picked the place because it was next to this um, roast squab place that we all liked as a family. So, you know, next thing you know, at midnight, we're all like just chowing down on. <laughs> and there was always like there was buffets, there was like banquets after. And so the celebration is actually in her life, but also the food and the nourishing of us. But it was also in, in celebration of her spirit. So I definitely think that, um, again, it might not be a lot of dancing and singing, but there was a lot of food. So. Mm-hmm. So, Allison, is there? Uh, this is quite an ancient tradition, is it? Is it not? Yeah. Oh, yes, extremely. So, yeah. I mean, there were ancestor worship from at least the Shang Dynasty, which is what two thousand or so more years before um, the Christian era. So, it yeah, it goes back a very long way. Yeah. And and has it changed over over the centuries in regards to its um, weight in, in, in families? Well, I think, yes, it has. There were times when the whole idea of filial piety was more emphasized by various dynasties than at other times. And, and that sort of trickles down. It is, it's kind of a useful virtue potentially for social ordering. But in 1949, when the Chinese Communist Party took over, there were times when they rejected so-called superstition. They rejected, um, you know, honoring the ancestors, 
But then at other times they've realized that it is useful to um, have a degree of respect for older generations. And they've reinstituted a law that was on in the legal codes in Imperial China that it is a crime to be unfilial, right? Because there are too many cases of elderly parents just not being looked after now. So they've gone back to that. So Alison, yeah, that does actually speak to what you had mentioned of that an unfilial child is a symbol of disorder. It's a symbol um, of disorder. Before we get into what that could um there should be this this sense of uh, harmony at, at the cosmos cosmic level. And an unfilial child is a is a, a signal that something is wrong at the cosmic level and at all the way down to if it, it shows that there's a failing, parents are not uh, training their children correctly. And that this sort of then expands up to that the emperor fundamentally is not ruling correctly. And then you get these sort of cosmic signs of earthquakes, uh, overly hot weather, um, and you know floods and droughts and famines and all those sorts of things. If the emperor's allowing unfilial behavior, or if the emperor himself is unfilial, and that, you know, there are some indications that happen sometimes, then there have to be these major religious sacrificial events and amnesties and all that sort of thing to, to correct the balance again. But a filial, an unfilial child is in the legal code is called, is one of the 10 abominations, which can lead to being uh, in the old days, being sliced to death through the lingering death execution. So uh, it didn't always happen, but you know, you can imagine the kind of fun threat that a parent would have. Um, and I've read of parents saying, you know, you're unfilial, I will report you to the authorities and you will be sliced up. So. Wow. Wow. That is quite something. But that actually, it, it's, that's very interesting because it actually leads to, Gary, your piece in regards to um, environmental chaos and how things are not being cared for in regards to our environment and how that, that trickle-down effect is is then resonating through our natural uh, kingdom, our, our animals. Um can you just speak about your interest in that? And then, Karen, how you uh, and Alex helped generate that uh, in an audio world? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I'm hearing Allison's saying is, like, this worldview that's just that was just, like, imprinted on me early on, which is that everything's connected, right? Like, the actions of the emperor are connect is connected to, like, the weather tomorrow. Um, and I think this uh, the, I've extended this worldview into just how I, I approach the day to day, you know, like today is connected to tomorrow and, and, and the actions we take. Um, and so, you know, bundling that all up into this filial piety thing is really interesting to me because I mean, I think, you know, Allison, you, you brought up the term like reverent care, which I'd never heard before, but I love it because of course, you know, growing up, I felt just this abstract connection to my ancestors, um, this, you know, that it's just a state of mind to be reverent of them. You know, as we grow up, we become more critical of these things. And I've only, I feel like I've only become more reverent, you know, in the stories I tell. I, I, I carry the stories of my ancestors with me 
this speaks a little bit to uh, maybe a generational disconnect or a cultural disconnect between the diasporic, as you say, Allison, um, uh, Chinese communities in Canada and the immigrant generation that are raising the new first-generation Canadians. Karen, was there a big difference in your upbringing, your perceptions of the world that are in conflict with maybe your parents or in synergy with it? Hearing these these perspectives is is always fascinating because I find that with uh, what's happening in China, what happens in Hong Kong almost seems like a different world because when you have different parents, what happens is that they take the bubble of the culture that they grew up with and that's what you are raised with, that bubble. So it's like almost like a time capsule of what you're experiencing. So the culture as seen through their eyes when they're also separated, because I grew up in Brandon, Manitoba, um, we didn't have a huge uh, Chinese population at all. So it was almost like the it, uh, how I was raised and, and the, the customs that I was raised with, with my family were very much based on what my parents brought over with them in the 1960s and 70s. So that worldview is sort of locked in a, in a, in a time. Um, and so I think of it as our culture being actually, and with diaspora and with immigration, being really resilient in that no matter what happens in the home world, we've taken a part of it that may or may not be directly reflective of that. And that filial piety, you know, when, when you approached me to direct this, uh, the script and what I saw in the, in the storyline was so much of the, um, the caretaking. I, I, I'm the oldest, uh, granddaughter of all the, basically the, the oldest grandchild of my, on my father's side. And I was grow I was raised with such an idea that I was an example for all of my other you know, cousins and siblings, and you know, I'm the oldest in my family. And, and so there's a lot of responsibility that comes with it. And the spirit world for me was always, I don't know whether it was my mother, you know, she's she's witch adjacent. So, you know, God knows what's happening there. But she would always have like, you know, downloads of things that were happening. So to me, the spirit world was always, and my ancestors were always so much a part of my life that we I regularly, actually to this day, I'm I'm that crazy person that talks to my my late father on a regular basis, you know. And so that world was really important to me. So when I read uh, Gary's script, what really jumped out at me was that these characters were real. There wasn't um, just because you could, or you know, whether or not you had the ability to hear them in the traditional sense of hearing them, which is what we, you know, really tried to get across. It's this idea that the 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 spirit world and the natural world are one. We're all it's all very interlinked. I get uh, I get you know as I get older and more witch-like, I, I think I get more downloads than I normally. I'm supposed to, but that conversation and the respect has actually grown and not, you're right, uh, the way that Gary put it, not in the traditional sense of like father knows best and, and that sort of thing. But the fact that as, you know, having lost my father, it's almost like I've embodied a lot of who he is inside. So instead he's become a part of me in a way that, um, you know, he wasn't when he was alive, if that makes any sense. And that's what I wanted to hopefully try to imbue in the audio play itself, which is how do we bring these characters to life in the way that I see the worldview as well. And that I, I hope that I'm sharing with Gary and and, and Allison's understanding of what, what this actually is. Well, but thank you, Karen. That was that's really moving. Thank you, thank you, Gary, too. Um, I, I'm afraid I tend to see, um, as an outsider, I see more of the, and as a text person, I suppose, I see a lot of the kind of more negative self-sacrificing aspects of, uh, of filial piety and also with my students. I have, uh, I would say, 95% of my students are of, um, of Chinese origin, Chinese background. Um, 
and I do see still a, a really heavy pressure on on them to to fulfill their parents' expectations, to to be the good child, um, to to get that education and you know get their degrees in business and in you know being a lawyer, being a doctor, and all those things. But really, secretly, what they want to do is to write, to write, to paint. Uh, I mean, I'm glad to see that Karen and Gary are both finding more positive ways of, of dealing with, with that kind of, well, what I see perhaps as pressure, but could be seen as a kind of opening up to other worlds, to the spirit world. That's really interesting and moving. Thank you. So this piece definitely um, does exactly that. It opens up to a different perspective, a different world. So we relate it to animals. Uh how how have animals uh how how can we relate animals uh, or how have they been related to this this virtue in the past are there stories that everyone has been related to um growing up are there are there examples of of how that's been used for centuries past there is this scholar called Keith Knapp uh, who writes mostly on early medieval uh, stories of the strange of filial children and, and but also filial animals and he has a, a, a really interesting article where you get stories of the filial crows but also also these monkeys um monkey uh, actually monkey mothers who are who are completely um uh tragically um trying to look after their babies when they're kidnapped and that sort of thing. So that there is a more kind of reciprocal mother-child relationship going on there. There's also stories of, one story of a, a, a filial son who protects his father from um, a band of tigers. Um, and the tigers are so inherently, naturally uh, admiring of, of filial piety that they stop trying to eat the father and bow to the, the filial son and leave. And of course, it's the crow stories too. So, yeah, those are my <laughs> my sort of perverse examples. Well, speaking of crows, I mean, similar to crows are magpies. You know, they do flock together, right? They do have a community. And wherever one of these magpies may have died, they would come back and they would visit that spot uh, often uh, for a period of time and then honor that that person there's a great great sense of loss it seemed and it was very apparent and interesting to see uh to see that happening in the natural world um so this piece itself there was this element of magical realism that you've incorporated gary into this piece first of all can you just speak a little bit to what magical realism is and why almost all of your pieces involve some of this magical realism Sure. Yeah. So magical realism. I mean, um, I think there are a lot of different definitions of it. Um, I've had a professor tell me that it doesn't exist, but you know, um, for <laughs> many others, magical realism is just, it's just realism with some magic in it. And so you can, you know, there, there, there can be, you know, there's like very light magic realism where there's just like a touch um, and generally, I would say I, I lean more towards that. Um, and then there's, you know, the other side of the spectrum where it's, you know, heavily embedded into the world um, and a natural part of the world. Um, and yeah, you're you're not wrong, Alan. Like most, if not all of my stories have some form of magic realism in it because what I really like to do in my stories is to, to take like a mirror to reflect back 
to to our our own world. Um, and in my stories, the magic is the mirror. So, for example, in this story, you know, it's it's the idea that things are right there if we're willing to listen. And so, you know, I centered the story around people whose job it is to listen to these things. Um, and I think the other thing um, that's interesting to me about magic realism is this idea about inspiring imagination. You know, there's so many different ways we talk about it as storytellers. We talk about like treating the audience like they're smart, treating the audience like like they, they're capable of holding, you know, different difficult concepts together. And to extend that, I, I like to imagine that audiences are capable of imagination as well. Like, like the idea that they can wrap their head around, you know, the super, you know, our, our story is set in, you know, suburban Vancouver and then, you know, dead animals speak. And I think magic realism allows for me as a storyteller to encourage that imagination um, of audiences, not only for the story itself, but also when they approach these other stories that maybe go a little harder into magic, but are no less like super compelling. Yeah, because we tend to we tend to be a little too literal and we need things described or explained to us a little too much or, you know, so Karen, how did you and Alex, our sound designer, uh, accomplish that? It's a big task. It's you have you have to create many different universes, whether it be uh, indicating urban encroachment with maybe the subway system into our parks, but also the perspective of the listener is the park ranger where we're actually, to your point, Gary, we're asking the listener to play that active role of listening to our uh, natural world and to our animals. Um, can you just talk to us about that process of of generating that in an audio world, which is a difficult task? Yeah, um, as a visual filmmaker, I tend, uh, you know, I, I and as a filmmaker who actually specializes in horror, um, sound design and music are so much a huge component of that storytelling. So, um, I, you know, in this case, you can't rely on visuals to get things across. But on the other hand, um, once we actually started working in the audio world, you realize just how intense and how much information we can get across through audio. So, you know, our brains pick up every little sound. So, you know, you might hear my my refrigerator hum that's in the background, you know, things that we don't think about that are, are just there. They're in our unconscious sort of minds. And uh, it was basically creating this, um, we wanted this world that felt like the ranger's world, but also to make sure that when Crow and Bear and all the other characters come in, that they're actually, we, we know that they're, you know, again, that it's it's uh, how do you create a, a real world while incorporating that magic realism? And um, I, I guess in some ways this is closer to my own reality where I, I when I'm telling stories, I'm trying to get across this is my worldview where magic doesn't it doesn't exist because it's it's always there. It's not a separate thing from our reality. So it's how do you how do we actually do this in the sound and in the music? And so, you know, when we're in the, the ranger's office, as compared to we're now in the woods, you know, like it was balancing out those two, the, those two worlds. And then obviously the spirit world and uh, making it, you know, again, grounded in reality without it having that tinkly sound of like, oh, no, we're in a magical dreamscape, you know, like that, that sort of uh, thing. It was a it was a challenge um, and, and a really fun challenge as far as things go, because 
you know, we were working with the performers. We had all of the, uh, there was Gary's text. There was all of the performances, but also the layers of music that we wanted to put in as well as the sound design so that we were actually the ranger. What would it be to be in a role of where you're responsible for this natural world and in facilitating? Because that's really what we are in as, as humans in this world. We're merely, I, I see it anyway, as a, I am here to basically, hopefully, fulfill something that I am here to do um, with reverence to those who came before me and hopefully the, the, the ones who I'm hoping to open doors for. And so, you know, that's, that's it's a, I'm hoping that the audio play reflects a bit of what that responsibility should be while in an entertaining and audio space. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Is, is filial piety attached in some way to reincarnation or rebirth, Alison? Uh, yes, I just wanted to quickly also say that I, I decided to close my eyes through, whilst listening to, to that because I just felt it was somehow I wanted to get rid of my, my visual sense. Um, and that really did, it helped a lot. It really added an extra uh, level for me. But yes, this uh, filial piety, sorry, uh, connected to uh, reincarnation. Um, well, it, you get in, in, in Buddhism, you get reincarnated, um, you know, through the cycle of life, depending on, on, on to to become an animal or a, a man. God forbid, becoming a woman. Um, and but that is based on your moral behavior in your previous life, right? So you have to be a moral person in order to and to be a morally good filial child would. would uh, add extra credit, obviously, and you would um, be reincarnated um, to a higher being. Um, but animals can can also be moral creatures, and they can be reincarnated as humans. So that's a kind of cycle. Is it also connected to karma that if you that you live a bad life here, you're going to be reincarnated and, and punished in the next? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's another it's another way. I mean, if you're cynical, you could see it as another form of you know be good now because they're going to have a horrible life next time around. Um, one way of of telling your children to behave, I suppose. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I was thinking about um, the time my grandmother. Well, not the, not that she does this over and over again, but when she passed, we actually had a Buddhist um, memorial service for her. She passed in Hong Kong, but we did it in, in Richmond in Vancouver. And uh, we were doing this chanting with the nuns. And, you know, there's nothing like a group of angry Buddhist nuns that chant. And um, I apparently was not chanting loud enough because I don't know the chant. Apparently, you know, it wasn't imbued in, in my culture as far as the um, you will know your Buddhist chants. And I, so I wasn't doing enough. And she poked me at some point and said, your grandmother's going to end up a cow if you don't keep singing. Right. So I was like, OK, better sing louder. Right. I remember like I was sitting across my mom and she's like, oh, you're in trouble now. Right. Because she kept poking me and she's like, this one isn't singing loudly enough. And so there is <laughs> so there is a, a slight terror of, of that. But for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I always feel like I'm surrounded by by that. And, you know, and I, I have, you know, again, I don't know if it's the pandemic or what's happened, but I've had really intense dreams in the last while. And I feel like, oh, there's connections there that um, I, you know, in my waking, normal, everyday filmmaking life, this has not been there. But with this long two, two year break that we've had, oh, God, everything has come back. <laughs> so I'm more connected now than I used to be. So is there anything else uh, that anyone wants to talk about before we sign off? I'm just going to say, just to like get it on the record, 
that like people are gonna think that there's a crow in the story because of what Allison said about like this connection with Chinese like filial piety culture. And I'll just like straight up tell you, I that wasn't on my mind at all. It is, you know, it is just uh, the happy coincidence of the universe. I will not take credit for uh, for doing that, but it's 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 a happy coincidence. I like it. How do you know? It? and not something from your ancestors, Gary. There it is, Karen. Oh, I just changed my mind. I believe it now. It's synchronicity, you know, go back to Carl Jung and the way in which everything, coincidences don't exist. It's just part of the universe, the meaningful universe. Yeah, it was dropped into your consciousness. So thank you so much. I think this was a really um, very fascinating conversation. And I just want to thank you all for joining and for lending your experiences and your expertise. I so appreciate it. And if you're so interested and willing, uh, please uh, hit subscribe and give us a rating or a star or whatever it is that you're so inclined to do. You can always follow us on our socials at MT. And thank you to all of our supporters. I hope you have a great day. Thank you for listening.